And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another live edition on this Saturday, January 21st. Gosh, can you realize we're at the end of the first month? Of the new year already? Where has the time gone? First of all, I want to kind of apologize to our listeners uh, for last weekend. It evolved into a series of climactic and electrical catastrophes. Uh, I, I live in the most gorgeous environment you can imagine, the land of enchantment. The only problem is because we have spent nothing as a nation on infrastructure for decades and decades and decades... It's kind of like living in a third world country. And when little things happen, like huge storms in California, and the weather currents and the jet stream carries the weather from California eastward, eventually reaching the land of enchantment, doesn't take much. I mean, I'm at over 6,000 feet, over a mile up. It's, it's higher than Denver. But it forms ice. And ice killed us on Saturday, and that killed the power for uh, hours and hours and hours and hours. And, of course, without electricity, there's no power down here in the studio. And it got so cold that there was no way to get it warm enough to do the live show on Sunday night. So the reason I explain all this is because we need funding. That is why we have at the top of the homepage an extraordinary opportunity which is this astonishing painting by Alan Bean, signed by 24 historical figures out of NASA's legendary history. Mercury astronauts, Gemini astronauts, Apollo astronauts, shuttle astronauts. And uh, we're offering it to the highest uh, donation to the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight, and it's because without funding, we cannot do a huge range of things that we have on the books for 2023. And we're going to be going into some of the details of the things that we would like to accomplish in 23 on tomorrow night's show, which is part two of things to come in 2023. And then next Monday, uh, Monday, no, not Monday. I'm not on Monday. Next Sunday night, the 29th, of January, following the rescheduling of Russell Targ for the 28th. On the 29th, we're going to do a whole show devoted to why the hell should we care that we have now had a stunning breakthrough in discerning lunar structures on the moon, this extraordinarily elusive architecture made of glass. And given that we've now figured out how to make it blatantly visible, and we're going to pass that on to the nine civilian artists that Elon Musk is going to take within the next few months, be it in 2023 or sometime in 2024, to the moon in a looping orbit around the moon, uh, spending, I don't know how much time they're going to spend there, probably at least a day, like uh, Apollo 8, back in 1968 before they come back home. All of those artists, by the time they get to the moon, because of this research, they will be equipped with the means of seeing and photographing for eternity, for history, for the archives, for the ages, what is waiting for humankind on the moon. And it's going to be incredible that this will be revealed by nine civilian artists in a variety of art forms, including the fine arts, photography, painting, that kind of thing. And it's going to be they who open the door to an astonishing future for all of the human race, for humanity. And it's all going to take place with your help because there's nobody else on the runway but us doing this. Nobody. Nobody, nobody, nobody. And as I go through some of tonight's news items, you're going to see why the burden is on us and by metonymy on you, you who support this show. So there's a variety of ways you can help. 
not the least of which is if you simply uh, give a donation, a significant donation to the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight, and the highest donations will ultimately wind up the owners of this extraordinary piece of history, which, as I said in our opening show on this subject a couple, three weeks ago, once it is acknowledged that Alan Bean, Apollo 12 lunar module pilot, uh, was painting the real extraordinary Monet moon, his work is going to appreciate at such a rate that it will leave even the hedge funds managers kind of dizzy because the world is going to want to make a hero out of Alan Bean for breaking the barrier of censorship, of denial, the deep state keeping us all in darkness when there's a stunning future which could be born as early as toward the end of this year. And we will go into much more detail tomorrow night, as I said, a week from tomorrow night. Tonight we're going to be talking about one of the ancillary aspects of this revolution, which is an artifact that, frankly, from what I know of it, I think it was done maybe by someone trying to leave a hyperdimensional message for humankind. And we're going to kick that around with none other than the current guardian of the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull. We're going to talk about its rather turbulent and controversial history. We're going to talk about who was Frank Mitchell Hedges and who was Anna Mitchell Hedges and what was the story there and how did the skull now wind up in uh, my prime guest's possession. And uh, that's, that's an extraordinary tale in and of itself, but that's only a prelude to discussing the technology. And I use that in a very broad sense because there is such a thing as conscious technology, which has to do with humans, spirit, ETs, spirit, non-physical transfer of information, other dimensional realities, where we are part-time occupants, etc. All, all of this opens up per this discussion tonight. But before we get there, what I'd like to do is to go through a couple of items which uh, you need to know about in terms of things that are about to happen. As you may know, uh, and for those of you who are new to the show, what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com. That is our URL, the other side of midnight.com. Dot com. Click on that, and at the very top, well, you scroll down a little bit, there is a brilliant banner, which can be a uh, help design, called the New Torsion Field Revelations from the Crystal Skull. And that is an actual photograph taken by my other guest tonight, Michael Hall, um, who is, Hill, I'm sorry, who is going to be kind of riding shotgun on tonight's conversation because he has had direct personal experience with the Mitchell Hedges skull and thereby hangs a tale as we will get into as the morning progresses. So if you go to that banner, click on that banner, that will take you from the homepage to the guest page and right under it, you will see fast links to items and fast links to bios. Click on my name in fast links to items. That will take you to my section of this guest page, which we call Radio with Pictures. And item number one. Now, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, the Russian crewmen on the International Space Station were about to do a spacewalk when someone uh, looked out the window. I mean, not really literally. They were looking at uh, uh, live feeds from the multiplicity of very good television cameras that are scattered all over the outside of the ISIS space station. And they noticed something very bizarre happening. The Soyuz spacecraft, M-22 is its name uh, that the Russians have given it in terms of the sequence of visits to and from the space station by Russian Soyuz spacecraft. M-22, which is parked uh, at an airlock uh, to function as the 
transportation for the crew's home uh, and emergency transportation in case the station has to be evacuated through some extraordinary, um, uh, you know, catastrophe that would require them to basically leave, abandon the station and get back to Earth as quickly as possible. Um, something happened to their ride. And if you look at the video, which has uh, been all over the, the uh, Internet, you can see something spewing into space like a artificial snowstorm. Well, it turned out that something had drilled a hole, uh, probably a high-velocity meteor, meteorite, had drilled a hole in the spacecraft just where one of the coolant loops comes close to the surface of the hull, of the skin. And it made a hole in, in the pipe, and all the coolant leaked out. So NASA has been looking, and the Russians, of course, have been looking at alternatives to provide a backup lifeboat situation in case the crew, all the astronauts on board, have to evacuate and get down to Earth in a hurry because the station is, for whatever reason, uninhabitable. And it turns out now that they are actually uh, looking at a scenario uh, where in, in, un, until the replacement spacecraft, Soyuz uh, M23, which will be launched next month, February, I think around the 20th, um, gets to the station and can be parked as the you know, spare lifeboat, um, they can only take two crewmen down to the surface of the planet in the current M-22 Soyuz spacecraft because three people will overload the remaining coolant system and would potentially lead to catastrophic failures of equipment on board. As you know, computers do not like heat. You know, that's why you have to keep all your equipment, you know, the fans and the screens or whatever on your uh, uh, desktop and on your laptops clean at all times because heat builds up in computers. It's inevitable. And when they get too hot, they turn off. Well, you can well imagine computers guiding the spacecraft to a landing and suddenly because they get too hot, they turn off. That is not good. So what the plan has been is there is also a SpaceX Dragon spacecraft uh, docked to the space station and they have moved one of the seats from the Soyuz over to the Dragon and in the event of a lifeboat emergency they would send some of the crew home I think five people in the Dragon and two people in the Soyuz um, on, up until the new Soyuz arrives in which case they will go back to the regular plan, which is four and one and three and the other. That all is in item number one. If you want to read the details and you like to know how uh, the Russians and the Americans are cooperating exquisitely well despite the war in Ukraine over keeping astronauts and cosmonauts safe in Earth orbit, the way things should be progressing down here on Earth and are not, hint, hint, uh, you can read that story. Item number two, in the last few days, the second of the now congressionally mandated annual public reports on unidentified aerial phenomenon, known earlier as UFOs, being conducted by the U.S. government in all its multiplicity of branches headquartered in an office in the Pentagon, uh, came to be published. And there's been a lot of interesting reaction uh, worldwide as to what it contains and what it does not contain. The thing, one of the interesting things that it contains is in the year since the last report, which was, uh, you know, about uh, uh, last summer, I think, was the first report. Now, this is number two. Um, six months, give or take. Something like 350 to 360 new unexplained UAP sightings have been reported to this new uh, Pentagon office devoted to trying to get to the bottom of the UAP UFO phenomenon. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is in item number three, uh, one of my uh, colleagues and a frequent correspondent, 
uh, and I'm kind of looking at when we might have him on the show. His name is Richard Sheck. He has been a longtime um, investigator into the UFO mysteries, as well as delving deep into the politics of uh, cover-up and deep state lies and all the prevarications around the field that have, you know, beguiled us for decade after decade after decade since, uh, certainly since Roswell. He has a column which I reproduce in item number three, and let me just kind of read to you uh, a couple of things that he says, because it's very telling in terms of the politics of how the current disclosure process is unfolding. And this was written around the 13th of January, uh, right around the time that the uh, latest uh, office of uh, uh, the director of, of, of intelligence report was issued to Congress. And uh, uh, Rich Sheck says the following, quote, reports are starting to emerge from potential UFO whistleblowers that are receiving what amounts to a cold shoulder from the same politicians who previously expressed support for greater transparency regarding disclosure of the UFO phenomenon. He goes on, I recently received an email from a very well-connected source that indicated there appears to be a reversal of the enthusiasm from politicians that was on display last year during the hearings held by Congress in May of 2022. Some of those who want to testify are now, quote, extremely hesitant about approaching the congressional oversight committees because they don't see any public statements from any of the politicians supporting previously greater transparency. Sheck goes on, in my recent article, Summarizing the 2023 NDAA, I gave a positive spin to what many enthusiasts in the UFO community saw as the high likelihood for ending the truth embargo because of the bold language in the new legislation. I was inspired by the spirit of openness embedded in the new law's broad requirements for transparency, as well as the optimistic pronouncements from insiders like John Ramirez, Gary Nolan, and Chris Mellon, whose sincerity in predicting whistleblower revelations, I chose not to question. Now comes this respected journalist to confirm my intuition, says Sheck, that caution is once again appropriate and that frequent assertions by the likes of Nolan, Steve Bassett, and others, and by that he means me too, that disclosure is imminent, is wishful thinking at best, and another disinformation psyop at worst. And uh, he goes on, so you can read all that in item number number three. This is why this is important. This is why, and I'm going to be very brief on this, and we'll get into it in more detail tomorrow night, and in great detail next Sunday night on the 29th, when we talk about our astonishing technological and political breakthrough vis-a-vis the structures on the moon. This is why, for the last several decades, I have basically ignored the UFO phenomenon and focused almost exclusively on artifacts. UFOs and those who purvey them can lie. Artifacts stand still. You can do archaeology. You can do forensics. You can do real science. All you have to do is get the data and analyze it and then make that data public in appropriate forums. And we're, as my uh, grandmother would have said, off to the races. I'm not surprised by the current turn of events. Um, I did not pick, by the way, that graphic uh, showing the UFO with the green ray over the Capitol kind of by accident, because tomorrow night, among other things we're going to touch on in terms of what could happen in 2023 in this arena, I'm going to bring up the idea that if there has been a long-term cover-up of what's going on in terms of extraterrestrials, 
volleying around the solar system, visiting Earth whenever they want to, and maintaining some kind of secrecy about all of that. It may not, in fact, ultimately turn out that the cover-up has been, shall we say, coordinated by humankind, by the so-called terrestrial deep state of unified states operating in conjunction around the world, despite conventional assessments of current geopolitics. In fact, if the cover-up originates where I think it might have originated decades ago, we need to look at the UFO occupants and the extraterrestrials themselves as chance the originators of the cover-up from the get-go, from the beginning, for more than 70-plus years. And again, there is an answer, if that's in fact what's going on, and the answer lies with artifacts. Okay, more on that tomorrow night and a lot more next Sunday night when we do this extraordinary program on the breakthrough that we've had vis-a-vis the structures on the moon that I'm going to give everybody the keys to the kingdom and how you yourself can be a part of this extraordinary adventure. My final item tonight, number four. There is a brilliant comet, at least it's brilliant in the news. It's not very bright visually. It's barely uh, naked eye visible in the uh, uh, northern skies. But if you want to know how you can go out, certainly you can see it with binoculars or a telescope. And it's not going to approach us closest until another uh, week or so has gone by. Um, let's see, 30 days has September, April, June, and November. So on next Tuesday, Tuesday night, or Tuesday morning, pre-dawn, you'll have your best shot at looking at this thing because it will be closest something like a little over 20 million miles away, if memory serves. Item number four is a very deep dive into what it is, when it was first spotted, what its name is, its coordinates, how to see it. There's a beautiful photograph showing uh, this extraordinarily long uh, ion tail. Uh, Most comets have dust tails and a separate ion tail, and they're not superimposed on each other because they're made of very different stuff, and you can learn about that by going to that link. If you want to really go out and see this for yourself, and I would recommend every opportunity in this uh, age when everybody looks at screens and nobody experiences anything for real by going out and looking, um, I'm going to be going out and looking. I'm fortunate to live in a very dark place where I have a stunning view of the northern sky, and at the moment, I think it's in a constellation called Como Bernice's Hare, which is a constellation in the northern hemisphere near the North Pole, North Celestial Pole. So have at it, and uh, you might send us uh, reports through our contact info, which is on the upper left-hand side of the screen if you're tuned into the page on a computer. I'm not quite sure where it is on a smartphone, but you can find it. It says contact us. And, you know, at the bottom of every show, there is a comment section, so you can send us information there as well. What does it look like? What does it do to you? How does it make you feel that we're on the edge of such extraordinary disclosures, provided we can get the rather messy terrestrial politics of intervention and uh, secrecy and cover-up kind of out of the way once and for all. Again, a lot more discussion on this tomorrow night and next Sunday night. So tonight, let us shift our focus now to my uh, uh, prime guest of the evening, whose name is Bill Holman. And Bill is uh, kind of a one of a kind. Um, He has had a long association with the owner of the crystal uh, uh, skull, the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull. And we're going to talk to him about that. He has a remarkable background in the Air Force and in martial arts that uh, has kind of prepared him 
to be the ultimate caretaker or guardian to ensure the safety of the Mitchell Hedges skull, which as far as I know, there are a lot of skulls now that have been, you know, found over the last several decades, but the Mitchell Hedges skull is unique. It's the probably the only one or one of two or three that I know that has been subjected to actual forensic scientific analysis by a major uh, corporation um, in Palo Alto, California. And I'm sure Bill will talk about that. And uh, we're going to have an extraordinary conversation. We're also going to be joined tonight by a friend and colleague of Bill, which is how I got to him, um, Michael Hill. Michael, as you know, is a uh, uh, Native American shaman. He is an award-winning musician, a filmographer. He is a UFO experiencer who has created a technology, a hyper-dimensional technology, which he will describe, which we were able to get one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Beverly Rubick. By the way, Michael, Beverly is not associated with NASA. She's had NASA contracts, but she's not a NASA scientist. So you need to stop, you know, printing that. That's not accurate. She is an independent scientific investigator uh, who has worked in alternative healing technologies and uh, things like uh, uh, prepared water uh, or whatever for many decades. I knew her back when I lived in Berkeley and we recontacted over the last few years and she at my request, ran some extraordinary tests on Michael's torsion field technology, and it turned out to uh, be a really red-letter day because she was able to measure verifiably with scientific instrumentation and reproducible results uh, the fact that whatever Michael's doing with his technology, it works. And I'm going to talk about... Uh, some personal experience I've had with exposing water and other fluids to this technology. And I can tell you over the last year or so that in my own personal experience, it's working. And that's no mean feat in a world full of disinformation and false leads and blind canyons and outright shysters and liars and uh, grifters to be able to say and to stand behind and uh, Michael and I are going to have a really interesting conversation about, uh, again, a technology which, frankly, um, to Michael, came from sources that are not exactly here on Earth. So uh, with that as a kind of a background, uh, I want to do something different tonight because, as you may or may not know, uh, David Crosby, uh, the uh, lead uh, singer and composer and genius of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and another group called The Birds. Um, he died in the last uh, couple, three days at the uh, relatively young age these days of 81. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to play some Crosby uh, music as part of our bumpers because there's no better way to remember a genius who affected our culture and our age, and everyone, than David Crosby. David, rest in peace. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, Bill Holman and the mysteries and magic of the Crystal Skull. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night on the 21st of January 2023. Yes, David Crosby. Gosh, what a, what a, what a genius. What a talent. What, what extraordinary, as they used to say, tonalities. We're going to hear a lot of his music as we go through the evening. But right now, what I want to do is introduce my uh, first guest of the evening, um, Michael Holman. Well, let's see. Um, I kind of gave you a thumbnail sketch before. Why don't we just open the line here? And uh, Bill, uh, welcome to uh, the other side of midnight. And what did I say, Michael Holman? I meant Bill Holman. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Uh, yes. See, I'm Michael's doing his mind here. thing off stage here. It's it's obvious, <laughs> you know, he's doing this voodoo thing. Now, you you didn't leave him with a skull, did you? Uh, no, it's right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. Um, what radio audiences want to know when they're encountering something, and there's a whole new audience that really probably knows a little, very little, if anything, about the extraordinary background of, of these crystal skulls, particularly the M- Mitchell Hedges. Um, let's start back with your background. How did you get interested in all this off-the-edge-of-the-paper stuff, and how did you wind up meeting uh, Annal Mitchell Hedges? How did you wind up becoming her confidant and friend for all those years and then ultimately taking care of her in the last eight years of her life, because that's got to be a—it's got to be a book all by itself. Well, it's uh, it, being around the skull. It's it's never dull. I'll tell you that, and uh, keeps life very very interesting. So uh, yeah, I uh, how do I uh, got into this? It's just that you know I believe in soul and past lives and all that, and I. I feel that my connection, I've always had a great love for adventure. And uh, I uh, heard about first F.A. Mitchell Hedges when I was down in Panama in the service. And this lady that was an English lady that owned this little hotel restaurant right on a little island called Taboga. And she would tell stories about Mitchell Hedges coming in and parking his boat uh, right in the bay and then coming in for supplies and stuff. And about his, uh, he was a great fisherman. He loved to fish and has some of the world records that have never been broken as of today even. But uh, so that first time I heard about Mitchell Hedges and then there was another time where I was in in uh, by the Panama Canal and there's a place there and they had pictures on the wall and one was a picture of F.A. where they, he was called into the Panama Canal 
because the Panama Canal had been blocked for three weeks and they couldn't get any ships in or out. And what it was, there was this huge uh, octopus that had blocked the whole thing. Oh, and, my gosh. Yeah, had the whole uh, way blocked so they couldn't even get anything out or through or anything. So he was called and he went out there and harpooned it. And they finally were able to cut it up and then pull, pull it up with tugboats out to sea and open it up. But I, that's another, so that's just something that stayed in my mind. And then at the, about the same time, I read an article and saw a picture of this crystal skull. And uh, I think, it, you know, there's there's a purpose for everything, but it con it really connected me with something really deep inside. And uh, I had that until I got out of the service. And then I heard about where Anna was at. And she was up in Canada. And I was living near Chicago at the time. And so they gave me a number. I just called up there and uh, there's this nicest lady, you know, really friendly and, oh, come up and see the skull anytime. And, uh, well, hey, my gosh, I have to say that twice. So I was up, went up there and I met with her and her. And what, 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 what year was this? That was about 1979, 70. Yeah, right. Oh, so it's quite a while ago. OK, that was my my first meeting. So I went up there and and met with her. And there's uh, I mean, uh, if you love adventure, uh, she I can tell you some stories and I hope to be able to tell you. Well, we got three hours. That's why you're here. Bill. <laughs> OK. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, she's looks like the sweetest little lady ever met. But. Uh, as I've learned over the years, I boy, that's so one person I would never mess with. She was as nice as can be, but uh, she was she was something else. But uh, uh, so, but well, hang on, hang on. Let's let's stop there because you know I'm going to mm -hmm. kind of skip around. Okay. Hedges really was kind of like the prototype for Indiana Jones, and so, he did everything. He was an explorer, archaeologist, soldier of fortune. He, you know, did stock stuff. In other words, but he wound up in 1917 in Canada, and he, for some reason, adopted this young girl, this 10-year-old girl, Anna. Right. And that's what led to everything else that we're going to talk about tonight. So do you? did she ever tell you the backstory why a guy who was footloose and fancy-free, not tied down, not married, you know, all over the world— why did he encumber himself with a 10-year-old girl, a daughter, right. at that age of his life when he was doing everything you can imagine an adventurer would do? Yeah, well, you know, she was like his great luck. So it's a lucky thing to him because when uh, he, took, he took her in and became her father, there, uh, things started changing in his life, too. And uh, a lot of... Uh, the adventures that uh, that he had, uh, a lot of things she played into it. She was a, you know, starting with when she was seven years old, uh, she had a life of, of that was uh, very unusual. Uh, so uh, just I'll throw out a story real quick. When she was seven uh, and living in in uh, Canada, uh, her her mother's family was over in uh, in France. Uh, Brittany, France, and they they were they couldn't find the her grand the grandparents, uh, and they you know they was everybody thought they had they weren't sure what happened. So oh, wait, 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 was she orphaned? Were her parents killed? She was, was orphaned. Yeah, she was orphaned. Her father was in in World War One and got gassed, and her mother uh, was that's how it happened. He uh, Mitchell Hedges would go up there with with friends and they'd fish all the time and uh they uh got to know because she would or the the mother would uh take care of uh a lot of the stuff that they needed the supplies and stuff and be friends and anna would uh, get worms for him so he'd have worms for fishing so i mean it was uh and she'd always charge him for it too because she was really good with a penny but, <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, so he knew of her because of his association and the group association with the, the, the mom. Right. Yeah, he was, I guess, a, a good friend uh, with uh, her mom and, uh, and no, had known the family for a lot of years. And so when her mom passed away, 
there was uh, 11 kids in the family. Oh, my. Different kids went to the different relatives. And the only one, there's two two of the kids didn't have a place to go. So uh, the two gentlemen that were with Mitchell Hedges said, well, hey, Mike, why don't you take her and, uh, and raise her? And uh, somehow that happened. And uh, he took her back to New York City. And he was going to put her in a, a private boarding school. And then he had to go down on a trip to Central America on one of his expeditions or starting one. And she would, uh, was so upset about it. He decided finally to take her with him. So he took her down to, uh, to, it was now Belize, which was, uh, British Honduras at the time. And this was when she was seven. Uh, no, this was when she was, uh, when she was seven, she went to England to, uh, help find her grandparents that are that were lost uh couldn't find nobody could find them and i'm, I'm jumping around in stories but it's a good story if you want to see how okay uh, but what it, as she was going across the sea in the boat she came up to one of the seamen and pulled on his his uh pants and said there's a stick in the water and that that was the first u-boat that was ever spotted and oh the, my the periscope and so she was the one that spotted the first uh, uh, Nazi, uh, well, it'd be German submarine. Yeah, the, the early German World War One. Right. And so from there, she went and stayed with uh, some relatives, and she would watch them. They'd always go down to the barn at night, take stuff in there, and then they'd come back. And so she snuck down when they left and went in there, and she found her, her grandparents' uh in a room back there locked up so she ran to the road there was they she heard somebody coming and she jumped in the bushes and then she had to run like three miles up the up the road to the she got to the family and when she got a hold out there they all came back and rescued the uh the grandparents but that was her at seven years old you know so she she had a life that started uh with the, adventures and good grief she sounds like she had you know kind of like remember when lou grant with mary tyler moore said you got spunk she sounds had, like she had spunk at seven wow yeah so so that's why uh when uh she was a quite you know she was very unusual a young child so uh that's why mitchell hedges you know i'm not sure of the whole thing with the mother and stuff like that either so uh but uh, I do know that. Well, let me ask you a kind of a straight out question. Is it possible that Hedges really was her father? Uh, you know what? There's a possibility on that because, you know, I've been around different things and heard and different things like that. That is a possibility. And so, in that era, you would have concealed it and done all this other, you know, kabuki theater thing to conceal the fact that she was born out of wedlock. But it sounds to me like they had such an affinity. That that's a possibility, you know. But I, you know, I can't say. But uh, that that would be a uh, that'd be something that would make a lot more sense, I would think. Yeah, you wonder why he would tie himself down, being this carefree, you know, Indiana Jones type, ranging the world, seeing the world, having the time of his life. Why would he tie himself down with a seven-year-old girl, unless? Right. So, uh, that. That's how it started, and then. Uh, did when, you ever? Did you ever ask her that question? Uh, you know what? I did not ask her that question. No, that hmm. would. Yeah, I. I didn't go there, but uh, that's just kind of you know things that you think about, you pick up. There's a that's a good possibility because why would she be the only one of the, or two of the ch children that weren't really, kind of they were put aside a little bit, you know, and never didn't have a place to go when her mother died, you know. So, but that's that's how it started with her and that's how they started their uh working on this these different things together. So, you know, like uh, when I was uh let's see in that 79 80 year period, uh we have a friend that's a psych great psychic that did this book The Skull Speaks. And she was uh, living, she lives in Toronto area, and she got a call from this gentleman that uh, 
uh, wanted to know all about F.A. Mitchell Hedges, uh, Anna Mitchell Hedges and the Crystal Skull. So she told him the whole story and he wanted to talk to her. So uh, Carol called over there and talked to Anna and she said, well, I'm leaving the next day for England. I, I can't see him. But uh, Carol gave him all the information. This is in 1979. 79. And then in, uh, it was about 84, this gentleman came out with a movie. Uh, it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> so, so he did build uh, Indiana around Hedges. Uh, you know, he's, Hedges was a very interesting gentleman. And he really, you know, all the people I met that knew him, they were in such awe of him and respect. It was so, yeah, it, uh, that is a, that's what's probably happened. Well, he, in the movie, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, he mentioned Mitchell Hedges and the Crystal Skull a number of times. Yeah. Back to the skull. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, now uh, I've found out a, a letter. Uh, it was like two years ago now. And it was written from the head of British intelligence, uh, Navy intelligence to Mitchell Hedges. And it was a kind of a coded letter, didn't make much sense. But I, you know, I saved it. But on the bottom, I had the, the, the uh, signal, you know, they always have to type their initials at the bottom of it. And, uh, found and you, you, you got this from his daughter, right, Anna? Yeah, I have, I have a bunch of letters, and that's one of the letters, yeah. And so... But I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen it, but I just all of a sudden came across it. But the interesting part about it is when you uh, found out who was the one that typed it, and it was this gentleman that uh, worked in, uh, in, in England for the British Secret Service, and he, uh, you know, worked with all the communications and different uh, agents in the field. And that the person that typed it for him was Ian Fleming. If you remember <laughs> Oh, my. Now when I do my talks, I say... So well, did Anna ever meet with Spielberg? Uh, let's see. You know what? Uh, I hear that there's a, there was a little bit of a thing with the, the skull and Spielberg that was a little... I'm not sure what it was. So uh, she never met with him. And uh, that's why they, were, they always tried to keep a distance from him, which in the end was really good because... Uh, after this movie was out, about a year or two later, uh, the Belize government tried to sue me, Spielberg, and Lucas, and because of the way they did it, the lawyers shut it down right away, and uh, everything turned out good, which uh, I, I appreciate that a lot. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff that happens, and I... Uh, I've run into a lot of uh, interesting experiences with people and shamans and uh, different spiritual leaders and and really well, science. For that connection alone, you should be doing a book on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, right now I'm a little busy, but yeah, there's a there is a lot of things that have been happening that uh, could definitely. It's it's really uh, if you like adventure. We definitely have adventure here. Yeah. So in the 70s, the late 70s, you get out of the Air Force. You got mm -hmm. kind of into this mythology of the skull and Mitchell Hedges and all that. You take an opportunity to call Anna up. She invites you up. What happened when you met her? Okay. Well, let's see. It was her and her secretary, and they invited me in, and they always give you tea. And where, and where was she living in? In Toronto at that time? Uh, she was in Kitchener, which is about an hour from Toronto. Okay. And so uh, that was that was my first visit up there. But then I, you know, over the years, I I would, you know, let's say she was going to do a lecture somewhere. I'd drive up and help her with a lecture. And it went all the way till about 89, and her secretary passed away. And then she took her, sold her four-bedroom house and moved all the stuff to England and bought another one over there. She lived there for oh, a year and a half, and she sold it and moved all the way back to uh, Canada. You know, she's all, you know, she's in her late 80s, early 90s when she's doing this. And uh, then she had a problem there, so she sold that one. And at that time, I said, come down to, to Indiana. So we loaded up everything and put it in a big van and drove it down to Indiana. 
and she stayed there for about three years. And then she decided to go back to Canada and she bought a house and was there for about another couple of years. And then she sold everything and moved to England. Are you keeping up with us? It's kind of pretty good. Great. Uh, talk about peripatetic. <laughs> and then, yeah, she moved back to, to Canada and she was real sick back in the late nineties. And I said, well, hey, come back to Indiana. I'll take care of you and we'll have some adventures. And so she decided to do that. So we moved her back to Indiana and uh, we definitely have some, uh, you know, it, she, I got her feeling better back to good health. And we did some trips to Central and South America. So it was oh really at, in their 90s. <laughs> did she ever write a book? Uh, her father was the did was the author, and he wrote a number of books. Uh, he wrote the last one. He had to write an autobiography. But I mean, he died <clears throat> so, in what fifty nine? Nineteen fifty nine. Right. You know, so between fifty nine and when she died at the age of a hundred, right? Did she write her own book on her life and any anything about her life? Uh, you know, she was supposed to, but she never got around to it. No, she never did. No. Did she leave enough information that you could assemble a book from her papers and documents oh, yeah. and all that? Uh, I could, yes. Yeah. And so uh, uh, that that's a possibility too. But right lately, I've been running around the country so much, it's been, uh, you know, it's been hard to really concentrate on something like that but uh uh it's a possibility we you know i'm doing a number of things and i think right now i feel with the skull that it's an important time because uh they the uh, legend is the skull is comes back at a time when the world needs help and i uh, i feel we're at that time now so. you think <laughs> yeah so I, and i you know i have a connection with it and I've learned the connection and worked with it, that it kind of, uh, kind of, uh, I'm, you know, I'm the caretaker, but it's kind of uh, taken me around the, uh, in all different places. It works in a lot of the high energy spiritual uh, places of uh, energy on the planet. And it's very much drawn to that. So. Uh, I don't I, know that, that you remember, I come from a museum background. Well, maybe you don't know that. So, you know, uh, in your bio, you have the top caretaker. To me, that's not the right word. Remember, words have meaning. Words have power. Right. You know, right. Mark Twain said the difference between the right word and the almost right word. Remember Mark Twain, writer? Oh, right. He I said, like was the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. <laughs> so the right word for you is not caretaker. It's guardian. Guardian. Yeah. Of the Mitchell Hedges skull. I I definitely do that. <laughs> well, that goes back to your background, Air Force service. It's you know guardian. I would I would that would be my recommendation. You are the guardian of the skull. So let's flash back. We've got about uh, six minutes till the top of the hour. Start at the beginning with the skull story. She's okay. seventeen. She doesn't want her father to leave her at a boarding school in what New York State, sure. right? New York City, yeah. And she demands, basically puts her foot down and says, you take me or else. Well, and he takes her to Central America. Right. He had a, no, he, he worked with the, the, with the Secret Service. And that's one of his problems. He had to take the uh, 1912 Secrecy Act and he had to sign that, which made a lot of the stuff he did. He couldn't really talk about it, but he was down there looking for a connection between the Maya and Lannis that he felt there was. And he did it at a time when a lot of the, the Nazis were running around looking for these power artifacts in different part, sites throughout the world. And so he heard about this lost city and uh, he went into with an expedition in and was able to find a place they call Lubantun. It's a it's a city of they call it the Falling Stones. And it's uh was like uh seven pyramids, a ball court, spiritual center, and this whole area that he 
spent uh, three or four, well, it was about four years burning and chopping with the natives to bring that all out of the jungle. Because it was, if you ever went to a, a ancient site before it's opened, you know, you wouldn't even know it. You'd rock right past it because you'd they see. They look like tree-covered hills. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah. Lots of tree-covered hills. Robin and I drove across Guatemala one night racing to make a, make a plane after I'd measured to the, well, you know, um, uh, Chacal, I think we were measuring. Oh. And as we're driving in this pre-dawn darkness, you could see these mounds on both sides of this little narrow country road. And we're, you know, being driven like at 80 miles an hour down a two-lane narrow, almost cow path. And as in the darkness, you could see these hills. And I knew, and she knew, and we both talked about it, that all of those so-called hills were actually ancient pyramids, so oh. ancient and covered with you know, vegetation and trees and vines. And I wanted to stop and do some measurements. And because of the schedule, we had to be at the airport. We couldn't stop. But I know exactly what you're saying. There's so much we don't know about Mesoamerica because it's just totally covered with jungle. You're right. And I, I spent some time in Copan, and that's one of the largest uh, uncovered sites. But if you're out there in the bush and stuff, and if you, I always said if you took a rock and threw it any direction, uh, you would land on something that was that yep. was ancient city. If there's that much down there, you know, it's just loaded with it. So yeah, and they're energetic. They reacted to my instrumentation uh, mm. by showing us the field, the torsion field. They're resonant with this hyperdimensional connection, and they're just waiting to be uncovered and rediscovered and put to use. Just right. Wait. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And, you know, because they are able to be activated now, uh, I think that a lot of uh, things can be done uh, even when you're not right around them in working the energy and sending that energy into uh, at least this third uh dimensional world which then connects to the other ones but yeah, it's it's quite interesting when you when you get around that stuff and it's just like wow there's so much to see and learn for sure there sure is okay we're basically a couple of minutes to the top of the hour so talk about you know he's under this secrecy uh was this under under roosevelt because of his con connection to the white house the secret service no, it was it was through uh, you know the British Secret Service. Oh, it, okay. Yeah. I thought it was. No, he worked with the British Secret Service. Yeah. Ah. Okay. And Anna was on a number of uh, jobs over there too. I, <laughs> that she did that were pretty high uh, profile stuff too. You know, here I am jumping around again, but uh, after you got to write this book. You got to take all her papers, yeah. assemble them, get a good editor. I've got a couple. In the back of my mind, I might put you in touch with. This sounds like a story that desperately needs to be told and told now. Yeah, well, I'm. It, it, it goes under your under your title of guardian. Guardian, yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> hey, I'm, that sounds like an adventure, and I'm I'm always ready for that. So that sounds good. <laughs> Super. That's yeah, okay. You know, we are we are literally at the top of the hour. Why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning, uh, Michael Hill, is waiting in the wings. Very nicely. Um, we're, we're talking with Bill Holman, who through incredible fortune and maybe destiny, you know, we're kind of supposed to be where we're supposed to be. He wound up being now the guardian of the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull and all that that entails. You're on the other side of midnight. We're doing an homage in our breaks tonight to David Crosby, who left us for um, other adventures a couple, three days ago. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link 
in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.